Classic deism teaches that God created the world, set its natural laws in motion, and then walked away. With the creation of the universe, all the ties between the natural and the supernatural realm were severed. From that point forward, deism insists that God has had nothing to do with this world. There are no miracles. There is no such thing as divine revelation. There is no such thing as incarnation. Prayer is irrational because at the end of the day, God has nothing to do with anything. Tracking down a very different trail, Christian theologian Andrew Murray said this about the relationship between God's relationship to the world that He created. His continuing influence upon it. He said, "...in creating man with a free will and making him a partner in the rule of the earth, God limited Himself. He made Himself dependent on what man would do." Now remember this statement, and I'll refer to it again, but keep it sort of in the back of your mind. God made Himself dependent on what man would do. Now, God freely does this. He chooses this course. But He chooses to limit Himself in dependence upon the will of man. To our day, theologian Jack Cottrell supports Murray's view, claiming that God took a risk when He created free will human beings. A risk that those beings might someday choose evil. He says there are many things which God desires that may or may not be accomplished because He has left it up to man to decide whether they shall be done or not. In the exercise of His sovereign freedom, God created mankind with free will and relative independence. Now in this way of thinking, God has something to do with some things to say it poetically or maybe a little bit more accurately, he has everything to do with some things and nothing to do with a whole lot of other things, such as when people choose to do wrong. Or perhaps, I'm not sure how he would land on it, when there is a natural disaster, the result of people choosing to do wrong, ultimately in the fall. But such thoughts about God are far from theoretical and speculative. They have direct implications on how Christians relate to God, how they deal with daily life. These ideas have direct consequences in people's lives. Some years ago, a leading charismatic TV host interviewed a couple who had lost two of their children in separate tragic accidents. As the mother recounted their heart-wrenching story, she was overcome by grief. And she blurted out, why would God allow this to happen? I'm not sure if it was scripted or not. But the TV host reached out to comfort his guests and assured them with these words. God has nothing to do with this. He has nothing to do with death and heartache. I ask you, is that good counsel to a grieving mother and father? Does God have nothing to do with a tragic death? Something to do with it? Or 
everything to do with it. I would suggest to you that we have no authority to answer that question on the basis of our intuition. The answer cannot be based upon what we determine to be the most reasonable answer. And then to read that answer back into Scripture. Nor can it be based upon what we decide is the necessary answer to to protect the reputation of God. We must stake our answer in the solid rock of what God has revealed about Himself. What He has said in His written Word. But what does the Bible say about these things? We can understand a man sitting there with a distraught couple and searching for an answer. But we cannot give any answer we choose about the Almighty. He has revealed His truth. What does His Word say? We must take what this Word says and then work out the implications. So we return today in this context, to our study of the doctrine of divine providence. Last week we noted that God is the Creator, but that He preserves His creation after bringing it into being. On a grand scale, God upholds His creation. He holds it together in the palm of His hand, so to speak, but then He will take it forward from there. He attends to His creation with such pervasive interest that the Bible can say that God makes the grass grow and He knows when a bird falls to the earth. God preserves His world, but He provides for it in this preservation. So as we define the doctrine of divine providence last week, we stressed this first aspect of His preserving providence. Today we labor on the second aspect of divine providence, namely His governing providence. Let's remember that definition that we gave to the term, the theological meaning of providence is the never ceasing work of God. He's created, but He continues to work. By which He is Creator and Sustainer preserves in existence all creation according to its original design. That's what we discussed last week. We looked at this theme in Scripture that He preserves, He holds together all that He has made on a grand scale and on a very narrow scale. We move now to the second half of this definition, which continues, and with absolute sovereign rule governs its every moment, free act and circumstance to the purpose for which He brought the universe into being. So you notice here in the second bullet point, the idea of preservation, and here in the third, the idea of of governance. And we will definitely land there for a much longer period of time. This is where our concentration will reside in the idea of God's governing sovereign purposes. He brought this universe into being for these purposes, for the glory of His name and the ultimate good of His people. As we continue to work out this definition, we move in consideration of God's providence to the understanding of His sovereignty. What the Bible reveals about God is that He rules the universe. He preserves it with absolute sovereign authority and He directs it with absolute sovereign authority. So it is as if He holds it in His hand, but He's moving somewhere with it. He's taking it forward. All of this depends upon His sovereignty. 
By God's sovereignty, we speak of His absolute freedom to choose and act as He pleases. His absolute power to control every creature and circumstance. And His absolute wisdom to conform all things to His every purpose. So the Bible consistently teaches that God's governing providence is the ongoing exercise of His absolute sovereign authority over all things. His freedom to act. His power to control all things. His wisdom to bring all things in conformity to the purpose of His will. Moving from that sense of God's sovereignty, we move to His governing providence. God continually, by definition, and freely exerts His influence upon the world so as to steer the created order and the course of history to the final destination for which He created all things in accordance with His eternal purposes. That's a lot to filter. That's a lot to take in here for a little bit. But let me assure you, and if you say I'm not getting all of that, I'm not sure that that's all making sense to me, we're going to work at unpacking these definitions over some weeks. And I trust as we do so that it will become more and more clear. But we're looking at a sovereign God who rules supremely and chooses to govern His created order in the direction of His purposes. Now, is this what the Bible teaches? At this point, deductively, I've made this proposition, made this statement about God, but is it what the Bible teaches? I think we can see that it is as we answer two questions. And the first question is this, what is the basis of God's governing providence? As we look at the basis of it, it does He respond to what people do? Does He know most things, but not all things, and work things out as He works through it? What is it that motivates God to govern this world? What is the basis of His governance? For this answer, I'd like us to turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. The context here is King Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful monarch of Babylon. At this time, it's the most powerful kingdom on earth. But Nebuchadnezzar's fame and influence corrupted his soul. His heart begins to fill up with pride. And he walks on the flat roof of his grand palace one day. And he looks down upon his royal city and filled with pride. Like a basement fills with sludge in a flood. He calls out and speaks these words. Verse 30 of Daniel 4. Is not this Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? My power, my might, I have built this great city. But while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. We have no idea what that is. Perhaps years. 
or months or something like that. But these periods will pass over this man in this horrifying condition until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Notice the singular kingdom of men. One kingdom handed by God to individuals. Immediately, verse 33, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Is this a myth? Is this just a story? It certainly sounds strange and unprecedented, doesn't it? But it really is not. The text describes a condition known as monomania in which persons lose their sanity and come to think of themselves as some type of animal. I wonder if I didn't see a man in this condition once where I lived in the inner city. He, was, he crawled down the sidewalk on his hands and knees and never talked to us. And It's a little bit freaky as you pass him on the sidewalk, but this is a condition that is known. There's some people that fall into this condition. We're, probably, we're aware of the, the uh, stories, the fictional stories of the werewolf. Well, that really has some connections to reality. Like, uh, like lycanthropy, in which victims act out their life as a wolf. But here, Nebuchadnezzar falls prey to boanthropy, a type of monomania in which one acts the part of a bovine, a cow or a bull or an ox. God tells Nebuchadnezzar he will suffer from this terrible condition until the king acknowledges that God rules supremely over the affairs of mankind. Psychiatrists who study monomania have concluded that its victims retain a considerable degree of their normal reasoning faculties. Obviously, they've lost a good number of them. But they have some. They retain some. They're still able to kind of think and, and reason through issues. So we have this king in this condition. And I don't think that it's necessarily an arbitrary judgment. In fact, in knowing the way that God works, we know ultimately it's not. But Psalm 8 tells us that God creates man a little lower than the angels and higher than the animal world. When human beings look up to God, our souls are enlarged and we see ourselves for who we truly are. A little lower than the angels and lower ultimately than God. When our attention is centered on ourselves, what does Romans 1 teach us? Where does it turn? When our attention is centered on ourselves, ultimately we begin to look not up but down. Remember that progression in Romans 1. In love with self, seeking our own wisdom and our own ways, we become naturally worshipers of the created realm. And ultimately worshiping animals and beginning to act like them. So I think in light of Psalm 8 and Romans 1, it may be right to conclude that God reduces Nebuchadnezzar to an animal-like state in order to demonstrate the bestial nature of his pride and of his self-worship. He is acting ultimately like one, thinking that he is above God, that he is the one to be glorified and magnified, but ultimately what he's looking 
He's really looking down. And so God humbles this man. Until Nebuchadnezzar, looking down to the grass in which he is grazing, comes to his senses and looks up in humble worship of the Creator. We read this in verse 34. Notice it. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Now notice what he says about God. Having been humbled in this way, he says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. There is God's sovereignty. His dominion, which never ends. Complete, free, absolute rule. This is the God of heaven. He lifts His eyes to see and marshals His tongue to worship the true and living God. Now verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, what have you done? Notice the phrase, He does according to His will. God acts at all times with absolute sovereign freedom. The phrase, none can stay His hand. The Aramaic would indicate the idea of slapping God's hand. A a child may be crawling and just figuring out the world and reaches a hand towards something that's very dangerous. And we might take that hand and slap it and say, you're not going to do that, that's dangerous. To To make the point clear. You can't do that with God. You can't take God's hand and slap His hand and say, no, 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 don't do that. He is entirely free to do as He chooses, as He wills. No one can say to God, what have you done? Now, we can ask God why. On some level, there's a proper why that we may ask. But there's a sense in which we cannot do this. We cannot put God in the dock and say, why have you done what you have done? As if we are the judge of what He has sovereignly determined. His power, goodness, and wisdom are so infinitely perfect, no one can legitimately question His purposes. God knows how to run His universe in the best way possible, and He does so. All human criticism of God's sovereign purposes ultimately is brazen presumption. And it's depraved. And this comes from the mouth of one who has just been eating like a cow in the field. No hospital, no asylum, no place to put him. But he says, God will do as he chooses. And no one can slap his hand and say, what do you think you're doing? The Bible supports this truth. It is stated so directly so starkly here by Nebuchadnezzar. But this is a theme that we read throughout the Scriptures. The basis of God's providence. What is this basis? As we have seen here, it is what God chooses to do. As Job 42 puts it, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 14, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in a man's heart, 
but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Remember the words that we read earlier from Murray? In creating man with a free will, making him a partner in the rule of the earth, God limited Himself. He made Himself dependent on what man would do. Is that what this verse says in Proverbs 19? Many are the plans of a man's heart, and God adjusts Himself to those plans. No, it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. We'll return to this verse with Lamentation 3.37. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? As Ephesians 1 says it, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. I'd like you just as you look at this visual, at this graphic, at these red words, purpose, planned, purpose, 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 decree, will. And we could marshal other texts that support this. The reading this morning, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is a theme that runs through Scripture. We need to see this thread and understand this. That the basis of God's governing providence is His decree. God ordains all that comes to pass in perfect conformity to His sovereign will. It is what, to say it simply, it is what God wants. It is what God purposes and desires. That's the basis of His governing power and the wielding of His sovereign authority in this world. We need to establish this truth. We need to come to terms with it. We need to hear it, receive it, and then begin to work out from there as we apply it in our lives. And that is not an easy task in many ways. But we are going to get nowhere by trying to help God out. And telling God that He's got to put it this way or say it this way or do it this way so that you protect yourself from the attacks that might come as people consider these realities. No. We start here. The basis of God's governing providence is His decree. It is His will. He orders what He desires. That leads us to the essential question, what is the reach of God's governing providence? To what extent does this providence reach? Does God ordain the salvation of His people but have nothing to do with an earthquake? Does God ordain the return of Christ and purpose in His will? Christ will come but have nothing to do with the change of a traffic light? Does God have everything to do with everything? We learn in Scripture that the Bible teaches God's sovereign governing providence extends over every aspect of the natural realm. This is an important theme in Scripture that we need to come to terms with. And I think there's a purpose why God stresses this so repeatedly. But Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds arise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. 
Sometimes that wind flattens things and takes people's lives, doesn't it? Psalm 147, He sends out His command to the earth. His Word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down His crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before His cold? He sends out His Word and melts them. He makes His wind blow and waters flow. You'll notice the orientation of these declarations. They speak over and again of the governing purpose of God. He sends. He commands. He sends His Word, which runs swiftly. Notice this, that it's the Word of God which is pictured as being sent out to melt the frost, for instance, or to put on our rooftops in not very long from now that white frost. Something that small comes from God's Word. He sends out His Word then and melts them. God knows all the scientific processes that are part of all of this. But in His providence, in His governing purposes, it is His Word that sends out the responses of nature. It's interesting. If we see these verses, verses 15-18, through 18, if we see them properly as God's governing power over the natural realm, then as we move to verse 19, everything fits ideally. Because seamlessly, without any introduction that there's a change of theme, the author then says he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. So the law of God is pictured right along with God's word that controls nature. Everything is ordered by Him. Matthew 5.45 He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Are we to understand God is only being behind the good things? Well, we would first of all have a debate about the good things. There's a rainstorm and some people think that's great and some people think that's terrible. We'd have a debate right there. But maybe we could agree on what the good things are and certainly we could agree in nature of some of the things that are very bad. Is He only involved in some of those things? Now, he pours out His mercies even upon the unjust. He's not simply behind the blessings of His people. But He pours out His goodness upon the unjust. In fact, it goes so far as to say, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father, says Jesus. little bird flying in the morning lies dead in the evening. God knows. It doesn't happen apart from Him. From His preserving power, from His governing providence, nothing happens apart from God's will. So we are to understand that God governs every aspect of the natural realm. And I said, why is this so important? As I mentioned earlier, it's so important because we are to understand the created order. As creatures made in the image of God, if God so orchestrates, so governs, so attends, the natural realm, how much more does He attend the human realm? 
Not only does God's sovereign governing providence extend over every aspect of the natural realm, it also extends from pole to pole of human experience. Now obviously the natural realm and the human experience converge over and over again. But we notice here His governing providence over every human experience. This comes out so ably in the hymn of Hannah who says the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. We notice these couplets, killing and bringing to life, judging with death and raising up, making poor and rich, bringing low and exalting. God's governing providence determines all of these distinctions. In poetic terms, Hannah is asserting that he rules from one extreme of the human continuum to the other extreme. As Amos put it, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? How are we to view a crumbling foundation and the destruction of a house in southern Minnesota right now? God has nothing to do with such things. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? I mean, it's a whole nother question we got to get to is do you like this God? That's a whole nother thing. What we've got to establish first is what He says. Who has spoken? And it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad comes? The word bad, the Hebrew ra'ah, can be translated calamity or even evil. This is heresy to some. But we've got to come to terms with what God's Word says and then work it out. By His grace, we'll do that in the weeks to come. But He governs providentially over every aspect of the natural realm, the good and the bad. He governs providentially from pole to pole of human experience. And He governs providentially down to the infinitesimal twists and turns of what we call chance. I have here a die. Singular, plural dice, but i got a die. Now, help me out here. I want you to think in your mind, how many sides does it have? Six, right? It's got six sides. Figure in your mind where it's going to land. Which number is going to be up? Now, is there anybody here that says, I'll risk $500,000 that I know I'm going to get it right? Now, I'm not, hold on before anybody, before we reveal any gamblers among us. Here's the deal $500,000 you give to the church if you're wrong. If you're right, we congratulate you. I don't work at a casino, clearly. Does anybody have that kind of confidence? Does anybody know the future? Does anybody know if I'll drop this? And if I do, what side will be up? So you've all got your numbers. We'll see who's right here. We'll drop it. And it is five. So congratulations. To the, I can always tell who got the right number. <laughs> it was six in the earlier service. 
Could you guarantee that five would come up? Not one of us. Not one of us could know that. We might take risk and gamble to say that I think it will be five. Not one of us could assure that that would be the case. But I ask you, did God know? Did God know where that would land and what number would be up? Does He care? And He would say, absolutely not. God's got bigger things to do than to deal with that little thing. That's not going to trouble God at all and He doesn't care about it and this is really kind of a silly conversation. Well, does God have nothing to do? Is it pure chance that leads five to come up on this die? Does He have something to do with it on some level? Does He have everything to do with it? We're getting down to the nitty-gritty of what we call chance. And I encourage you to look at Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33. Let's set our eyes on this answer from Scripture. Proverbs 16 and verse 33. Proverbs 16.33 reads, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The lot is the ancient rock, paper, scissors, or the ancient die, or something like that. Perhaps some rocks that are cast into the, the lap with one that has on a robe, and it determines yes or no, this way or that way. Something that simple. Something that bespeaks fate and chance. It's every decision is from the Lord. It doesn't say when it's a really, really important thing and people pray for a long time, then God may decide for you and help out with this roll of the, of the die. It's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, God's governing providence his active, his active influence in this world reaches to the most minute detail. The one who makes the grass grow reigns supremely over the toss of a coin. The one who upholds his universe to the degree that he knows when a sparrow falls rules freely over every action and circumstance. I agree with Charles Spurgeon who said it this way, poetically. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses the creeping of the aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. If one random microorganism, molecule, or atom reared its head and went its own way, God's preserving and governing providence would fail. And the universe would unravel into chaos because in that moment God would cease to be God. Now we ask a third question. 
And that is, what is the method of God's governing providence? How does He do this? Is there not such a thing as human freedom? Are we just robots moving around as God has programmed us? It's very crucial that we address this question or we can be very much harmed by what we see in Scripture. What we have seen leads some to an almost fatalistic end. Lead others to simply reject it and rewrite their ideas to conform with reason over Scripture. What we see in Scripture and have established is that God who preserves all that He's brought into being to the most intimate detail and who governs to the last degree even a drop of a die to conform to the purpose of His will. But we must then begin to understand how He does this. How He works with our freedom. And how we are to understand things such as prayer and evil and a God who would ordain that evil be. In anticipation of addressing that question over the weeks to come, according to God's direction here, we will notice that Scripture also teaches the confluence of divine decree and human will and responsibility. That they merge together in a way that we cannot fully comprehend, but this is the Bible's directive. It is not that this world is fatalistically oriented, that everything is left to what God has decreed and we move around as robots, nor does it teach us that human will subjects God's purpose. More on that in the future. But as we stop today and anticipate that, let's ask some questions of ourselves. Consider what we've seen to this point. If God in His sovereignty determines the role of a die, do you think He has nothing to do with the circumstances of your life? Or does He have everything to do with them? If He cares about the demise of a bird, do you think He cares about your life? Do you think He cares about this church and His people throughout the world? God does not rule in a half-hearted way. He doesn't lose some of His children along the way. Misplace them and not remember to take care of the details of their life. When we look on the big scale of things, the role of a die is not as important as the life of a bird. And the life of a bird is not as important as your life and mine. As God has created, as He has ordered the world, we have been made in His image. And this sovereign God who knows when a sparrow falls and who knows the number that will be on top when a die is rolled, is a God who governs your life and every circumstance of it. He knows every detail. And He watches and hovers over everyone. Again, we come back to the question, do you like a God like that? It's convenient sometimes to think that God forgot about me. 
As one religious leader put it once, that God got this one wrong. What is your greatest disappointment in life? Your greatest trial? Your most debilitating weakness? We will perhaps have opportunity to return, but let's go to Romans 8 and verse 28 just briefly. A passage we know well, but a passage that must rest on what we have discovered of God's governing providence. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Well, let me tell you what that means, says some. That God will work good for those who please Him. That's the end of it. God does blessing things and good things to good people. Not at all. He works all things together for good. He works many things together for good for those who don't love Him. We saw that, didn't we? He pours out His rain upon the just and the unjust. But He also works many things for judgment in the life of those who do not know Him. But for those who are His, for those that He has chosen as His own and brought to Himself and given life, His every purpose which goes down to every detail is always and only for our ultimate good. This is the promise of the One who called the world into being, holds it together, and directs it forward for the purpose for which He created it. I am doing everything for good. Now God is not going to show us His notes. And there's a lot of times I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me that He's doing what He's doing. If He loves me, why would He do this? This is where the counsel arises. For instance, oh, God has nothing to do with that. You're suffering. God cannot possibly have anything to do with that in your life. This brings no comfort. It brings no grace. But we have the Word of God Himself that says, I know every detail. I love you. And I am working even the pain and the heartache and the difficulty out together for your good. I wouldn't design it all the way He does. I wouldn't plan it all the way that He does. Nor would you. But I have this confidence in my Father. He doesn't work out everything for our convenience. But, as verse 29 says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That we would be identified with the risen Christ and that we would be conformed into His likeness, into His moral purity. So the agenda here is not that our life is easy, that circumstances go our way. The agenda here is that everything that God is bringing into my life to the most minute detail to what might even seem to be chance is meant for good. Which I try to remember when I get really irritated with red lights. And what I need to remember 
when God delivers a severe blow. Everything in between. We can always know that He's working out every purpose to conform us to the purpose of His will, which is to conform us into the likeness of Christ and that there's not one rogue Adam out there. Philippians 4. Let me point you to one more passage in application. If it wasn't for this truth that is encapsulated in Romans 8, 28, and 29, how could we even listen here to what Paul writes, to what the Spirit of God says? But knowing the governing providence of God, we can run to Philippians 4 and verse 6 and rejoice when God says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there will be a lot of requests, a lot of pains, a lot of heartaches, a lot of confusion, a lot of difficulty, but we don't need to be anxious about anything if we come to trust that God is indeed steering the ship of the universe and caring for every detail of my life Don't be anxious about anything, but rather pray. Now that assumes something, doesn't it? There is a strike against fatalism. God knows all that will be. He's programmed everything. We're robots. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing to decide. Why pray? Not at all. Pray with earnestness. Replace anxiety with prayer. Worry about what might be. Worry about who's running the universe and if he's asleep at the wheel. Replace that by going to the one who's steering the ship. And pray and seek his face. Verse 7, and the peace of God result. The peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus shows us, doesn't it, how little is our faith. To have in the midst of what would create great anxiety and heartache and difficulty for some, to respond to it with peace. Still grieving. Still concerned. Not looking at such events in a way different than an unbeliever would as far as their being bad. But replacing worry with prayer, and receiving in the place of a bitter and anxious heart the peace of God. I think this passage in Romans 8, 28 and 29 are utterly ridiculous. If there's a God in heaven who's running around adjusting to what we decide to do and isn't really sure what it's going to be, They're asking way too much. But if we come to understand His preservation and His governance and providence, we can indeed be anxious about nothing and pray and receive the peace of God in the midst of any trial. That purpose of God is operative in our lives And I may speak to someone here as we close today that you don't know Christ as your Savior. You've not been delivered from your sin. You are not a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Do you know that His purpose for this universe was to bring you to this room today and to bring to your attention the One who reigns sovereignly over heaven and hell and who will stand ultimately as the judge of this universe. He has in His mercy brought you to this hearing before God's Word. Maybe it's time to quit acting good. Time to quit playing religion. And time to come to terms with the God who has everything to do with everything. He will be your judge if He's not your Savior. But this sovereign God who rules with absolute power, wisdom, freedom, this God has provided a way by which your sins can be forgiven and you can receive His grace and His mercy as a free gift. If we may be of help to you as you leave today, talk to someone that we might show you more of what God has done to replace sin with peace. The peace of God that passes understanding because we have a peace with God who has forgiven our sins. Let's bow for prayer. We thank You, Father, for Your mercies to us in Christ, for the wisdom of Your truth. We are awed by it. We sense our lack of trust and faith in the God that Scripture reveals. And I pray for those among us here today who have reasons to be very anxious because of a sin, because of a broken relationship, because of what someone might do, because of a lack of income, because of the direction of someone else in their home, because of some trial or heartache, physical disease or temptation, we come, Father, with reasons to be anxious. I pray that You will deepen us in Your Word, in Your truth, and help us to apply in faith what we have seen. May Jesus Christ be magnified as we learn to trust You and learn to rejoice in the fact that You are working all things together for our good to conform us into the likeness of Christ. Bring to saving faith Enlighten the eyes of anyone among us that does not know Christ as Savior according to Your sovereign purposes. Through Christ we pray. Amen.